Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, and chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. Chapter 13. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. The word of the Lord. We're in a four-part, we're at the end, actually, of a four-part mini-series, uh, looking at a key church, the church of Antioch in the New Testament book of Acts, and if you're new to the Bible or new to Christianity, um, Acts is the second installment of a two-volume work written by a medical doctor who was living in the first century, and this doctor was highly educated. He was articulate in literary Greek and uh, the styles of Hellenistic history, uh, and his first volume was, is in fact a collection of eyewitness testimony to the life and teachings of Jesus. It's one of the most important works in, in all of history. Um, so it's an, his first work was an eye, eyewitness collection of Jesus' work, Jesus of Nazareth. And that volume is called Luke. And the second volume is called Acts. And Acts is, is about this early movement of, of Christians, this early movement of Jesus' followers, which became known as Christianity. In fact, uh, from the passage that Lori just read, we find out that it's in Antioch that, that these people, these followers of Jesus, are first called Christians. So in many ways, these, these brief episodes that we've been looking at through uh, the book of Acts, uh, uh, specifically about the church of Antioch, give us a window. They give us a kind of a picture uh, about what characterized the earliest Christians. What were the defining traits? If you had to pick the defining traits of, of the followers of Jesus in the first century, what were they? Uh, the church in Antioch, I think, gives us a pretty good historical account. And in the past weeks, we've looked at things like uh, Christians and the importance of Scripture, their dedication to Scripture, 
uh, the importance of prayer for the life of the early church and, and the centrality of compassion and, and social action in the community. But today, I want you to take a pen, uh, take your worship folder. Um, I, I always get nervous whenever the pastor asks me to do something while he's uh, preaching, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you uncomfortable for a second. So take a pen, take a worship folder, and underline three words if you have the bulletin this morning. In verse 22, underline the, the word sent out. And then in verse 30, underline the word sending. Verse 22, the word sent out. Verse 30, the word sending. And then in, in verse 3 of chapter 13, underline sent them off. Verse 3, sent them off. Those are actually three different words in the original language, but it's all getting at the same idea, the same reality, sent. Christians are people who are sent. They are on mission. That English word mission comes from the Latin word missio, which means sent, to send. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, you are sent. You are on mission. So today I want to focus, I want us, I want us to look, let's look at three features of, of the mission. First of all, the logic for mission. Secondly, the shape of mission. And then thirdly, the engine in mission. So first, the logic for mission, the shape of mission, and then third, the engine in mission. Uh, as most of you know, I love Pixar movies. My son does too. And just recently, he's been quoting lines from Incredibles 2, specifically the older daughter, Violet, when she's sitting at uh, the dinner table with Mr. Incredible. And she says, so, are we going to talk about it? The elephant in the room my son loves to quote that for some weird reason. I don't know why. It's 2019. We're living in a post-Christian, post-truth, post-everything culture. This is life after Broadway's smash hit, The Book of Mormon. And so in any conversation around the idea of Christian mission, I think the elephant in the room is, is Christian mission good for society? Is it good for the world? You see, missionaries get... If you're following the news or you're reading anything outside of Christianity, missionaries get a pretty bad press these days, and probably some of it is even justified. They're usually depicted as naive, shallow imperialists. Take, for example, the story of the American missionary John Allen Ch uh, Chow. In November of 2018, Chow made global news because he was killed in the process of trying to make contact with the Sentinelese, a small tribe of probably no more than several dozen hunter-gatherers living on an obscure island in the Indian Ocean, and who are considered, this small tribe, to be one of Earth's last uncontacted people. Chow was sent by a missionary organization to make contact with this obscure tribe in the hopes of teaching them Christianity. While hailed as a martyr by some, the general sentiment, I think, as I was following the news and reading the articles, seemed to be best expressed by one commentator who said, quote, John Allen Chow is not a martyr, just a dumb American who thought the tribals needed Jesus when the tribals already lived in harmony with God and nature for years without outside interference. Even Chow's own father seemed to be unsympathetic 
to his son's aims, saying, quote, John is gone because the Western ideology overpowered my Confucian influence. One writer uh, who interviewed Chow's father uh, said that Chow, Chow's father blamed evangel- evangelicals' extreme Christianity for pushing his child to a not unexpected end. And he referred with particular bitterness to the Great Commission, Jesus' injunction that Christians spread the gospel to all peoples. Now, as an aside, I have some problems with Chow's methodology, too. Um, But I digress, and if you have questions about that, you can ask me afterwards. But there it is. Extreme Christianity. You might be here today and be thinking that extreme Christianity is especially toxic. It's imperialistic. It's dangerous to the good of our world and the good of society. You might say, sure, there are some good teachings, some moral values that Christianity shares with other major world religions, but isn't it, isn't it narrow? Isn't it narrow to say that if you don't believe my way, then somehow you are lost and are in need of saving? Isn't that narrow? But imagine for a moment having a friend. Let me make an illustration. Imagine for a moment having a friend who is showing symptoms of a disease, of an illness that you, you previously had. You know from experience that it's life-threatening. You know that the treatments that the doctor prescribes, the things you had to go through to get well, you know all of that. And you see that this friend doesn't even realize they're sick. They're ignoring it. They're suppressing it. So what do you do? You have to be on mission. You have to listen to them. You have to sit with them. You have to seek to persuade them gently. Share your own experience. Share how that, that, those symptoms were true of you. How the doctors made prescriptions and gave you medication. You have a dynamic at work in your life. A combination of both love and truth. You love this friend and you know the cure. You know the remedy. If you merely love them but didn't know the cure, you wouldn't be on mission. And if you had the truth but didn't love them and ignored them, you wouldn't be on mission. If you know the cure and you love your friend, you are on mission. See, I think when Christianity is accused of being narrow, when the idea of being sent, being on mission partnering with Jesus to seek and to save lost people, I think when that idea is dismissed, what people are really saying is, I don't agree with your cure. I don't agree with the remedy that you're turning people to. See, everyone agrees that something isn't right in the world, that there's something that needs healing. There's a disease, there's something that needs fixing. See, we all have views, whether you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, whether you're irreligious, whether you, uh, whether you follow another practice or another lifestyle, we all have views on where people need to turn in order to be saved. We just disagree on where to turn to get help. For some people, it's politics. For some people, it's education. For some people, it's doing the right thing. See, in one way or another, we all must find a way to justify our existence in the world. 
to offer some validation, some evidence that explains why we are, what we're here to do, why anything matters at all. You need that. You, you operate with that mentality subconsciously every time you get out of bed in the morning. We all need to be connected to or be in contact with something that we perceive as good, something that's of crucial importance, something that has fundamental value. And whatever that is for you, you will be on mission for that. We are all, Christian or not, actually on mission. You are all trying to turn people to see what the cure is, what the remedy is for what's wrong with the world. This is a long, long way of actually just explaining verse 20 and 21 in chapter 11. The early Christians came to Antioch and began proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. We're all mission we're all missionaries. Everyone trying to turn people to the remedy and the cure. For these early Christians, for the story of Christianity, the cure was the Lord, turning to the Lord. The logic of mission is this. The true meaning, the ultimate justification of our existence, the evidence that explains why we are and why anything matters in the world has been disclosed. It's been revealed. The true meaning of your story, of my story, is disclosed in the story of Christianity, and it's this. Christianity teaches that there's a God who made us to love and know him, but all humanity turned away and were lost to him. And instead of ignoring us, keeping us at an arm's length, hiding the cure, God became a human being. The transcendent became imminent. In love, God sent his son into the world to be the cure, to break the power of self-centeredness and death by going to the cross. And Christianity teaches that Jesus was alive again after dying and now rules all history as the Lord of Lords and is preparing a new reality where death and suffering are ended and where we will live with him forever. That's what Christianity says is the cure. That's what these early followers of Jesus were turning people towards. That's the cure. That's the remedy. That's the logic. This story is true. Jesus is Lord. And because that's true, it's the only cure. You see the logic for mission. If this story is true, it is true. Then you have to turn people towards it. You have to turn towards it. Let's look at the shape of mission. Uh, Leslie Newbegin, who um, Isaac uh, quoted from earlier, is a British pa- was a British pastor and theologian who served for nearly 40 years as a missionary in India. And personally, I've I've, uh, I've been incredibly enriched and inspired by his thoughts on the idea of, of mission. And there's one curious place in Newbegin's writing that I was reviewing this week where he says this. He says, one searches in vain through the letters of St. Paul to find any suggestion that he anywhere lays it on the conscience of his readers that they ought to be active in mission. For himself, it is inconceivable that he should keep silent. But nowhere do we find him telling his readers that they have a duty to do so. So how do you make sense of that? Christians are sent by Jesus. But what Leslie Newbegin is saying is there's actually, 
you look at the New Testament in vain to find a duty, a requirement, um, uh, uh, something that says, go and do this. How do you make sense of that? I think what we see in the New Testament and here in Antioch, in this text, is that as Christians live more fully into their identity in Jesus, when we are pursuing faithfulness as Christ followers, mission just happens. It just happens. What do I mean? Let's explore three marks of this community in Antioch. First, they were a learning community. First, they were a learning community. Let's think about the shape. They were a learning community. I think for many of us, I think for myself, as I was thinking about the sermon about mission, we tend to view being a witness for Jesus as a matter of speaking and acting. And of course there's speech, of course there's action, but first, there's learning. I actually think there's clues to how this church at Antioch was, was a learning, represented a learning community. One clear, one very clear clue, and one more subtle. The clear clue is this. This community was a learning community in, the, in that they were being taught and studying the scriptures. Verse 25 Barnabas goes to find Saul, and for a whole year they teach people. Verse 27, prophets, people who knew the word of the Lord, came from Jerusalem to communicate God's word to the community. Chapter 13, verse 1, there was an ethnically and socially diverse group of prophets and teachers guiding the early Christians through all the scriptures. Why? It's because believing in Jesus is not arriving at an end of all learning. Somehow you've said the prayer, you've made the profession, you've made the commitment, you've joined the small group, and now we go to heaven when we die. But believing in Jesus means the starting point of all learning. Look, if the gospel is true, if Jesus is Lord, then now all things we thought we had figured out. Everything that I thought I had figured out about my life, I have to relearn in light of the truth of the gospel. My life, my money, my family, my work, my relationships, my sexuality, my identity has to be relearned. I have to know and learn what Christ's lordship means. What it means that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. We think about the Great Commission as going and making disciples often, and that's a good thing. But we leave off the part where Jesus says, teach them everything that I have commanded. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, part of the mission is diving into the scriptures, is studying God's word, is thinking about your life, your parenting, everything in light of the lordship of Jesus Christ. One example that's hinted at in this text, is just a hint, is early Christians struggled thinking through the gospel and race. In part, this is a lot of what Acts is actually all about. If Jesus is Savior and Lord of all, then what are the implications now for how Jews and Gentiles relate to one another? What about slave and free? What about rich and poor? Christianity doesn't mean you shut off your brain. It means now you're thinking, you're thinking deeply and rationally what it means that Jesus has a call on my life. 
But this early Christian community, that's the, that's the clear, it's right in the text. It's so clear. This is a learning community. But they weren't just learning from the Bible. They weren't just learning from the Bible. They were actually learning the culture. They were learning their neighbors. How so? You know, it's interesting. This passage has a connection with Acts chapter 8. In Acts 8 and Acts 11, uh, we have an indication of um, after the martyrdom, after the death of this man named Stephen, one of the early leaders in the church, uh, he was killed by the religious elite in Jerusalem. Christians were scattered to Samaria. We read about that in, in, in Acts chapter 8. And then in Acts 11, this passage here, we read that some Christians were scattered further north to Antioch. Now, there's a small but I think significant difference in Acts 8 and Acts 11 about the content, the things that these Christians were talking about with their neighbors. In Acts 8, it says that Philip proclaimed to the Samaritans the Christ. Another word for that is the Messiah or the Anointed One. But in Acts 11... It says that some of, some, of the, uh, some of these early Christians went to the Greeks proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, why does that matter? It matters because when these early Christians went to the Samaritans, they knew that the Samaritans, as followers of the first five books of the Old Testament, had at least a vague understanding that there was, there was a rescuer coming. There was some type of person who was going to come onto the scene and renew the world and rescue all of history. But the Greeks and the Romans, the Gentiles, had no understanding of this. No, they, this what, the, the idea of a Messiah or a rescuer wasn't even in their mind. It wasn't even in the culture of the time. It, that's, so that's a small detail, but is it, is it insignificant? It's hardly insignificant. I think it's an indication that these Jesus followers were learning the language of the culture, the hopes and dreams of the culture, the fears and aspirations of the culture. You see a clue of that, I think, in the text in, uh, where it talks about this famine. In verse 28, Luke records that a famine occurred under the reign of Caesar Claudius. What these early Christians were saying, what they were testifying to, was a kingdom where Jesus is Lord, where Jesus is Caesar and not Caesar. Their message connected with their neighbors because early Christians had spent the time to learn their neighbors. So they were a learning community. They were also a sharing community. If you were here last week, uh, this was really the focus of the entire sermon. Acts and the rest of the New Testament shows that compassionate action for justice and peace in the community is not something that's secondary or marginal. We'll do it if we have time. It's actually central to the mission of Jesus. That's true in the ministry of Jesus himself. He served with life-giving words and life-giving actions. But as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, let me be honest with myself. Evangelism, social action, they sort of seem like an added extra, something uh, that I might do if I had the time. But most of us are being busy being stay-at-home parents, being teachers, software engineers, healthcare professionals. What shape might mission take in my nine-to-five? 
I'm so glad you asked. Look at the character of Barnabas. Barnabas was an effective, well-respected, well-liked leader in the early church. We read about him here in Acts 11. He's the one who's chosen to come and help this young, growing, vibrant, multi-ethnic church. And it's actually under his ministry that it seems like this church continues to grow. But do you see what he does? You see what he does? He, uh, in, in verse 25, he went, the, the church is growing in verse 24, then he went to Tarsus to search for, for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. You see what he does? Church is growing, thriving, successful, bearing fruit, and he goes and looks for Saul. Do you know how self-effacing, how selfless, how controlled by humility you have to be in order to put someone else in a position where they not only begin to share the success that you have, but in, in, in many ways end up surpassing you? This is what happens to Barnabas. He is a key leader in the church, and over time, he falls off the radar, and Saul becomes uh, the one that everyone's concerned with the one that everybody looks to, the one who's writing most of the New Testament. See, we live in a culture of ruthless assertion, of self-promotion, of branding ourselves on social media or broadcasting our success, of stepping on whoever we need to to climb the social and corporate ladder. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City, and in one of his books on work called Every Good Endeavor, he recounts a story from one of his early days pastoring in Manhattan. And he tells this story. He says there was a young woman uh, visiting the church and darting in and out uh, of, of the church service each week. And at one point after the service, Keller intercepted her on her way out and was asking about her own faith and what she thought of the church. She said she was exploring Christianity. She didn't believe but found a lot of the, the ideas and the concepts very interesting. Uh, she then explained how she found out about the church. You see, she worked for a very demanding company in Manhattan, and not long after beginning there, she had made a, a, a huge mistake that had, uh, she thought would cost her her job. It cost the company a lot, of, uh, a lot of money. But her boss went to his superior and took complete responsibility for it. And as a result, he lost some of his reputation and a good deal of ability to maneuver within the organization. Uh, she was as you might imagine, understandably amazed uh, by, by, this, uh, by this, this kindness, by this generosity. And she went to thank him, telling, uh, telling this supervisor that she had often seen superiors take credit for the work that she had done, but she'd never seen a supervisor take the blame for something that she'd done wrong. And she wanted to know why. The, the supervisor was, Keller says the supervisor was modest and deflected the question, uh, but she was insistent and she continued to press him and finally her supervisor told her, I am a Christian. That means among other things that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for things that I have done wrong. He did that on the cross and that is why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. And Keller, as he's recounting the story, she, he says that she stared at him for a long moment and asked, where do you go to church? 
Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, how might you empty yourself? How might your reputation decrease? How might you pour yourself out to fill up someone else, to better and increase the reputation of somebody else, to take the blame for someone else's mistakes on yourself because Jesus did that for you? That's, that's, what, that's a, just a picture. It's just a, one picture, one image of what following Jesus, of being on mission with Jesus might look like. Third, so the church was a learning community. It was a sharing community. It was also a listening community. There's so much here. I won't have time to get into it, but let me point out just one instance. Chapter 13, verse 2. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, now, when th- that language of worship, when, when, when I, it, it can be somewhat confusing. When I hear the language worshiping, I think of worship songs and praise bands and Hillsong or insert whatever musical group that you prefer. But the language here of worshiping is actually the language of the temple in Jerusalem. It's the language of the priests in the Old Testament. Why does any of that matter? Let me just drop to the bottom line. All through Acts, there's a thread woven into Luke's account of the early church, and it's this. God is building a new temple. He's actually fulfilling in the Christian community. He's fulfilling in your life what the temple was always supposed to be, the sight of God's presence and his glory that would one day cover the whole earth. So as these Christians were were gathering together, they were reading and teaching the scripture, they were praying the Psalms, they were seeing people baptized into a new, uncommon, diverse family, they were celebrating the presence of Jesus in bread and wine, and in all of that, they were listening. And they began to catch a vision. You see this in Acts and all through the scriptures, that that the heart of Jesus and the heart of the scriptures were not just messianic. The heart of the scriptures were not just Christological. They weren't just Christ at the center. They were also missional. They were missiological. That the heart of Jesus is on mission. See, they gave God the space to speak into their lives, to show them things they didn't know, to launch them into mission they probably wouldn't have chosen for themselves. Why? Because at the heart of God is mission. And they were listening to that. They were hearing that. They weren't coming to worship. They weren't praying to get things that they wanted or to get a spiritual high. They were coming to listen to God and to say, what is your call on my life? to listen intently. Now think about that. If you listen intently to God, listening is an attitude of humility and openness. It's an act of love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian, pastor, and resistance fighter in Nazi Germany, he writes that often Christians, he says, quote, often Christians, especially preachers, think that their only service is always to have to offer something when they are together with people. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. Listening can be a greater service than speaking. Friends, maybe the best service 
that you and I can give our friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus in the 21st century, the best service that we can give them is to listen and then listen and then listen again. Before you speak the word of God to people, you need to listen with the ears of God. So we've looked at the logic of mission. Jesus is Lord. That means good news for everybody. The shape of mission, Jesus calls us to be a learning, sharing, and listening community. Let's look thirdly at the engine that drives all of this, the engine and mission. Um, it's typical if you talk with Christians about mission, if you read books about being on mission, a lot of the language is, is primarily uh, spoken of in the category of obedience to a command. We're on mission, and that's obedience to a command. So you hear people reference the Great Commission, or the missionary mandate, or the importance of being missional. And there's some justification for that, but it sort of also seems to miss the point. Because the mission of the church, your mission if you're a follower of Jesus, is rooted in the gospel itself. See, the great danger is that you and I walk away from this sermon or walk away from the book of Acts tempted to do what we are always tempted to do. See the work of mission as the good work that we use to seek to justify ourselves. But there's two realities here in Acts that we need to both humble and sober ourselves and they're also the same thing that will energize us and propel us out in joy. First, it's Jesus' mission. It's his. Yes, we are called to join with him, but it remains his mission. Acts 1, Luke writes that in his first volume, in his eyewitness uh, collection of eyewitness testimony about Jesus... He says that in his first volume, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That means that in Acts, the story is Jesus is still on mission. He's still active. He's still doing and teaching. The implication, you and I are not in the driver's seat. He is. But there's a second reality, and it's here in Acts 11. See, Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene uh, they went to Antioch, and they were taking great risks, uh, great, uh, great personal costs to themselves. Uh, they were sharing the Lord Jesus with a diverse city of, of Antioch. And we're told that the Lord's hand was with them. You see that in, in verse 20. The Lord's hand was with them. Luke's borrowing a phrase there. He's picking up on a phrase that's, that occurs all over the New Testament. Uh, throughout Scripture, you read that God's hand was either um, either for someone, with someone, or against, or against that person. It's a fascinating phrase. But the takeaway for me is that Jesus was with them. The Lord's hand was with them. Do you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, th Jesus is with you. He has promised to be with you until the end of time, and he is with you. You, know, you want to know what the greatest catalyst is going to be for you to befriend your neighbors as you disciple your kids, as you pour your energy into your work 
to help make the world a better place. It's that Jesus' hand is with you. It also, it also it, it seems to imply to me that Jesus is not just giving these disciples a little push or a little support or a little extra assistance, but that actually Jesus is on the front lines and these early followers of Jesus were joining Jesus at the front lines and I think that's the deepest motive for mission that you could ever experience. The desire to be with Jesus on the front lines seeing his kingdom at work, his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Simply being with Jesus where he is. And the good news, friends, is this, that we join Jesus on this side of the cross. So those hands that are with you bear the scars of the cross. The place where the mission was accomplished where the victory was done, where the work was finished. See, the Lord's hand was with them, and it is with you because it was against Jesus. On the cross, Jesus took the justice for our apathy, our isolation, our callousness, and he took it all into his hands so that you could receive the hand of mission, the hand of love, the hand of partnership, the invitation to come with him, to join him in that mission. It's his mission. It's not up to you. He's invited you in. He's called you, and he will go with you. He will be with you through the suffering as you deny yourself, as you take up your cross and follow him. Let's remember the gospel for ourselves and then go tell someone else this story. Would you pray with me? Father, you are a God on mission. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your love has invaded this world. Jesus was sent to redeem us. The Holy Spirit was poured out to empower us. And now you send us in all of our weakness, in all of our frailties and inadequacies to be your ambassadors your witnesses to the ends of the earth. We pray, Father, that as we parent, as we make friendships, as we work hard with excellence in the fields that you've called us to, Father, we pray that your spirit would empower us, that Jesus would be with us, and that the resounding voice of the Father would speak peace to us. So, Father, as we come to your table, bless us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.